Hey there. Thanks for listening to the Greg Laurie Podcast, a ministry supported by Harvest Partners. I'm Greg Laurie, encouraging you. If you want to find out more about Harvest Ministries and learn more about how to become a Harvest Partner, just go to harvest.org. My message title today is Contending with Discontentment. Contending with Discontentment. Say that five times fast. Um, And we're continuing in the House of David series, talking about the life of David, this amazing character, this man after God's own heart. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18. How many of you brought like a physical Bible today? Hold it up. Let's see it. Let's see those Bibles. Oh, come on. That's a good look. That's a good look. The rest of you, what's the deal? No, just kidding. I I actually, when I sit in on Sundays uh, and my dad's teaching or someone else is teaching, I actually, you know what? I bring my phone, that's it. I use my phone and I use the scripture on my phone and I take notes on my phone, so it's all very convenient. I actually take notes on my iPad, but that's okay. You, you count too, don't worry. I'm not giving you a hard time. So 1 Samuel chapter 18. You know, most of us are familiar with the parable that Jesus told when he talked about Lazarus and the rich man. You remember that story? He was talking about how, you know, basically uh, Lazarus was this very, poor guy, and this rich man was a very rich guy. The rich man ate well every day, whatever he wanted, was very opulent. And the suggestion here, as the story goes, is basically that this rich man was, he was very self-absorbed. He didn't care much for other people. He was selfish. He didn't share his things. He didn't care much for anybody else. And he was not a very godly man. Um, He wore purple all the time, which was a sign of having a lot of money. So, you know, he, he liked to show off his wealth. He also wore very fine linens. And uh, you're like, I'm wearing purple linen today. What does that mean about me? Don't worry. This is like culturally relevant then, not, not so much today. And so he, he was very wealthy, had lots of nice things. He ate basically whatever he wanted, very, uh, very indulgent and so forth. And then Jesus contrasted him with Lazarus. And there was a man named Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor beggar. <laughs> He was covered in sores. He was carried to the city gates every day by his friends so that he could go and beg for money, beg for alms, handouts, basically. Um, The thing that he looked forward to the most is when the crumbs would fall from this rich man's table and he would get to eat the crumbs along with birds and dogs and whoever else. And every day the dogs would come and lick Lazarus' sores. Very, very sad uh, depiction. And Jesus says, one day these two men died. They both died, and they were both in eternity. And basically, uh, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom in those days. Heaven wasn't there yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross for everybody's sin. And so the Old Testament believers, they would go to a holding place, a temporary place that no longer is there called Abraham's bosom, and it was in Hades. And Abraham's bosom was great. It was good. It was a happy place. And then there was Hades. There was basically hell. And that is where torment went. People that were not believers who had not been uh, justified in their faith. And so Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom and the rich man went to Hades. And it says that the rich man, he looked in a long ways off. He saw Father Abraham. He saw Father Abraham standing there with, Abra- uh, with uh, uh, Lazarus by his side. And the rich man called out, to Abraham, and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Would you just send Lazarus down and dip his finger in water so that he could cool my tongue with it? Because he is in flames, he's in anguish, he's in torment. And Abraham said, Sir, in your life that you lived, you lived in comfort, and Lazarus lived in torment. 
And now today, you live in torment, and Lazarus lives uh, in comfort and in riches. And so Jesus' point here was that basically this rich man, he had everything he wanted on earth, but he missed the most important thing, which was a life that was surrendered to God. And Lazarus, while he was very poor, he was spiritually rich. And so I heard the story about a uh, Sunday school teacher that just relayed this amazing story to her, her class on Sunday school and went through each kid and asked them the question, who would you like to be in that story? Who would you like to be? Would you like to be Lazarus or would you like to be the rich man? And every kid, you know, very pious. Oh, oh, Lazarus, of course, Lazarus, yes. I'd like to be Lazarus. And she came all the way to the very last kid and she looked at him and she said, who would you like to be in the story? Would you rather be the rich man or Lazarus? And the last little boy looked at her and said, well, I, honestly, I, I'd like to be the rich man while I'm living and, and Lazarus while I'm dead. Can I do that? Is that an option? <laughs> I think he missed the point, didn't he? But isn't that a perfect summary of human nature? We want what we want while we live, but we also want to secure our place in heaven. People ask all the time, how much can I sin as a Christian and still go to heaven? Oh, you're kind of missing the point here, buddy, if that's your question. Um, people want to live like a devil, and then they want to die like a saint, right? People want to live like a devil, and then they want to die like a saint. A lot of times people uh, will say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to become a Christian yet. I'm going to put that off until I'm a little bit older, right? And they put it off to the deathbed conversion, right? Oh, I'll, I'll do that when I'm literally on my bed dying. Okay, well, there's a lot of assumption there. That's assuming that, number one, you're going to live a long and healthy life to where you're going to be able to make that deathbed uh, conversion. You're going to commit your life to Christ on your deathbed. That's assuming you live for a long time and you don't die unexpectedly. And two, um, that's also awfully presumptive because the fact is, if you live your life for 85 years in a certain way, what makes you think that you're going to be able to pivot on a dime like that and commit your life to Jesus uh, right then and right there? It's really, really unlikely. Um, the fact is, if you do think that that is an option, friend, it's you that's missing out. You're the one that's going to miss out. Oh, yeah, you get to live the way you want to live. Let me know how that turns out in a couple decades, right? I've experienced enough to know that when I go and follow my own will and I choose to not follow God's will and I do my own thing, man, it leads to misery. It leads to disappointment. It leads to all kinds of things that I don't want to experience I have found that the people who live their lives for God and are obedient and submissive to his word and are grounded in the community of the church are among the happiest, the most balanced, the most content, and the most vigorous in this life. When you put it off, giving your life to Christ, it is you who misses out. Truly, it has nothing to do with their possessions or beauty or their accomplishments. It doesn't come from circumstance temporary things that take place. Oh, I got this car. Oh, I look this way. Oh, I, I'm so happy about that. No, it doesn't come from that. No, the believer's joy does not come from circumstance. It comes from where we stand and we stand before God accepted because of our faith in Christ who died in our place. Today, there's a lot of talk about what is good and what is true, what is right and what is wrong. And those topics in our culture have come really become uh, uh, completely relative today, right? There is no more absolutes. 
There's no more absolute wrong. There is no more absolute good. It's relative to each person. Oh, you like to do that. You like to engage in that. You like to think this way. You think that whatever, the world is flat. That's okay. As long as it makes you feel good, that's all fine. That's all fine. Truth has become completely relative. Uh, meaning we no longer have an absolute definition of truth or an absolute definition of good in society today. Pop culture tells us that we need to make allowances today, that we need to blur lines, we need to be tolerant, we need to be celebratory of things that the Bible calls outright sin. Well, listen, I want to tell you today, we will never blur the lines here at this church at Harvest about what the Bible has to say about sin or about truth or about what the Bible has to say. We're never going to blur those lines. We'll never compromise in that area. So many of you today have to deal with this in your workplace, have to deal with it in your schools, in your education. Your children have to deal with it. All of us have to deal with it with our phones, the things that come across our screens, on our television sets. Um, and that is why it is so important as we are inundated with this false narrative, this false truth, that is why it is so important that we are educated in what real truth is, and that is what the Bible teaches, and that is what we're committed to here at Harvest. Last week, my dad talked about a very familiar story about David and Goliath and how to conquer your giants. It was really great if you missed out on it. He talked about how we can conquer those spiritual giants in our lives, giants of addiction, giants of pride, envy, gluttony, uh, pornography, anger, giants of personal sin. But he also talked about giants we face that oppress us from the outside, that oppress us from the outside, primarily the devil in the influence he has on our culture today. My dad's fourth point last week on how to overcome your giants was finish the giant off. And that, of course, is when David, he not only knocked Goliath down, no, he went over to Goliath, pulled out his sword. And my favorite part of the message is my dad's sound effect is when he's sawing the Goliath, you know, Goliath's head off. It's like, okay, thanks for that visual very much. Pretty intense, this giant sword. He killed his giant. He slayed his giant. It wasn't enough to knock him down. He had to literally decapitate it. And he talked about how we need to do the same thing with our own sins. You need to burn that bridge. You need to disconnect from that group of friends. You need to delete that app off of your phone. You need to throw your phone away. You need to pour that alcohol down the drain. And he went on. But he said this in his fourth point. He said, to confess your sin is to agree with God. If God says it's sin, it's sin. If God says it's good, it's good. We, we're the ones that emote. We feel, we think, and we justify. And then we think that those things validate what we believe. Isn't that true? We think that our emotions, oh, God understands. God knows my heart. Yes, he does. He knows your heart. That is not a positive thing. Our hearts will always lead us astray just because we think that something is true, just because we think that God is going to make an allowance for us uh, does not make it so. God's word is absolute truth. And as Christians, we cannot blur the lines of sin and truth. To do so is apostasy. And that is when we put ourselves in God's place and say, we know better than God. And that is the original sin that Adam and Eve committed, isn't it? In the Garden of Eden, they decided to eat of the tree of the forbidden fruit. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked and will lead us astray, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us. And this is what we are going to see today as we continue in our series, The House of David. We're going to see Saul, this man who had it all. 
He had everything that he could ever hope for. I'll list some of the things that he had that just really he should have been content with, but he found himself wanting more. He was not happy with what God had given him. He was not happy with the blessings that God had poured out upon his life. He wanted more and he wanted to do it his own way. Again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'll be reading from verses 6 to 16. Again, my message title is Contending with Discontentment. Let's read together. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. And so Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. And when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me only with thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. And so from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Another interpretation for that word is Saul looked askance at him, right? Looked askance at him, kind of out of the side of his eye. He looked at him with an attitude or a look of suspicion or disapproval. Some of you uh, have teachers that looked at you that way. I know I certainly did. Uh, Verse 10, the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand and suddenly he hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall, but David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David for the Lord was with him and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men and David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did for the Lord was with him. And when Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. One day Saul said to David, I am ready to give you my older daughter Merib as your wife, which he had promised to him when he conquered uh, the the giant Goliath. Uh, And he says, but first you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than me doing it myself. Now we know where David got the idea from when it came with uh, Uriah the Hittite, right? He ended up doing this uh, after he slept with Uriah's wife. And so let's end there. Amazing story, amazing passage of scripture. And initially, when we look at Saul, he seems to be the right man for the job. He seems to be the right man for the job. If you read Samuel and, and just the qualifications that Saul had, he seems to really be the perfect king. Saul looks like a king. He was taller and more handsome than anyone in all of Israel. And if there's one thing we know to be true, if you're tall and good looking, there's going to be a lot of doors open for you, right? (laughs) We read that in 1 Samuel 9 too. We also read that Saul came from affluence. He came from affluence. He was wealthy. His father was wealthy. He had lots of animals and livestock and sheep. And that is actually how Saul first met Samuel. He was looking for two donkeys that had gone astray. We read in 1 Samuel 9, 1. So he came from affluence. We also read that Saul had God's hand of blessing on him. 1 Samuel 10, 1. We read that he was given a new heart from God. 1 Samuel 10, 9. We also read that Saul had the loyalty of the people. For a time he did. He had the loyalty of the people. He was very victorious in battle. He was a victorious leader against Israel's enemies. Uh, 1 Samuel 11, chapters 11, 14, and 15. Uh, record all the times that he was victorious against the Amalekites and the Philistines and others. But you see, while we may think that sounds like a pretty great king, 
um, we look upon the outside and we judge a person based on their outward appearance and accomplishments, but the Lord does not see as we see. He looks upon the heart. First Samuel 16, 7 says, God does not see men as we see. He looks at their heart. That is something he is able to do. Saul had it going on. He had everything that a person could really hope for. He had power, wealth, influence, success, accomplishments, the loyalty of the people. He had God's blessing on his life and upon his rule, but it was not enough for Saul. This was not enough for Saul because Saul was disobedient to the Lord. He did not follow his commands directly a number of times when the Lord told him what to do in battle, he disobeyed the Lord. And this showed his discontentment with what he had been given. When Saul was disobedient, it showed that he was not happy with what God had given him. He wanted more. He wanted to do it his own way. And when we sin, that's exactly what we do. We are actively choosing our will and our desire for life rather than God's. We reject God's will and we reject God's plans for our life when we sin and follow our own plans. Discontentment is not something that not only plagued people in Saul's day, it plagues people today, doesn't it? Certainly, there's a number of us who deal with discontentment on a regular basis. Shoot, I do. I'm discontent with stuff. I want the nicer car. I want the nicer house. I want the new phone. Uh, whatever it is, I want the new thing. I think we all deal with this in some capacity. New surfboard all day. Yeah, I would love to get that stuff. Come on. Benjamin Franklin had a great quote. He said this. He said, who is rich? He that is content. Who is that? Nobody. Nobody's content. Nobody is content. The person who has contentment is truly rich. Scripture tells us godliness plus contentment is great gain. That is a great place to be and to have godliness and to be content with what God has given you. That is a wonderful place to be. I heard the story about a wealthy guy who worked on Wall Street, worked in his high rise building. And every day he saw the same guy out front of the building begging for money. And you know, he'd, he'd throw him a couple bucks once in a while as he walked into the building. And one day he was coming down the stairs and he heard this guy muttering to himself, oh, if I only had $100, if I had $100, all my problems would go away. Everything would be right. And I would be happy in life. I would be content. The rich Wall Street banker was so moved by this that he pulled out his wallet, pulled out a crisp $100 bill, said, here you go. Be happy, be content, go forward and, you know, be thankful in your life now. And the beggar said, oh, thank you so much. Or he was so happy and, and so gracious while the guy was there. And just as the Wall Street banker kind of got around the corner, he paused for a moment and he heard the beggar say to himself, why didn't I ask for a thousand dollars? Enough is never enough, right? Saul's envy, his discontentment with his own life is really put on display in our text today. Look back at verse seven. These ladies, they're singing this song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit with David, uh, they credit David with ten thousands and me only with thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. The fact is, under Saul's command as king of Israel, and the Lord was very prosperous uh, for Israel, and he helped them to defeat their uh, enemies a number of times. Under Saul's command, he had definitely killed 10,000s of men, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Israel's enemies for sure. Uh, and David, as far as we know, he had never killed a man up to Goliath. So this was probably the first man he had ever killed. So they're singing their song, you know, David has killed his uh, 10, or Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his 10,000s. Kind of a weird song to sing, by the way, right? Um, but hey, you do you. Uh, and Saul hears this and it's just, it's nails on a chalkboard. It's nails on a chalkboard. He can't stand it. 
Now, this kind of thing, it could annoy anybody, right? It could annoy anybody. But Saul was the Lord's anointed. He was called to a higher standard. And his reaction here shows exactly why God ultimately rejected Saul as the king of Israel and had chosen David instead. Saul was a king. He was a king. David was a scrawny shepherd boy from the underbelly of society, and he just defeated a monster plaguing the Israelite army. David was ruddy in complexion, which means he probably had, you know, red hair and fair skin. He was super young, probably still had pimples on his face, and it's like, really, you're going to get insecure because this kid just defeated a giant? If anything, Saul should have joined in with the singing and let David have his moment in the spotlight, but instead he chose to let it get under his skin. Does that happen to you easily? Things get under your skin real easy. Um, you're trying to tell a story or have a conversation with someone and someone butts in in the middle of it and you just clearly grimace, oh, I'm so annoyed someone interrupted me in that story. Um, or maybe you're at work and your coworker gets a promotion because they just made a sale and you're so bugged with it because that should have been you that got that promotion and you haven't had a promotion in a year, never mind the fact that you've been there for 15 years and you make three times the salary that that guy does, you're still ticked that he got an accolade that you feel that you deserve. Or maybe your next door neighbor gets a new car and it's nice and shiny and it's, you know, that new car smell is inside that lasts for like a week nowadays. And you just are so discontent now with the car that you have. You look at it and you can't help but notice all the, the dings and scrapes and the time that you were eating in and out on the way home and it completely exploded on the seat and the car smells like onions. <laughs> Never mind the fact that it's a 2021, you just haven't taken care of it. You're not happy with your car anymore. Saul couldn't handle someone else getting the glory. He couldn't handle someone else getting the accolades. He felt that he was more deserving of credit. He felt that he was more deserving of the respect than David. And so from that day forward, he sought to undermine David. He even attempted to kill him with a spear. And he went so far as conspiring to kill David uh, by sending him out to the front lines of battle. All of us have the potential to feel this way. And we certainly have the potential to act this way as well. Alexander McLaren, a wonderful Bible commentator, said this, The roots of this are in all of us. The only way we keep them from growing up rank is to think less of our reputation and more of our duty, to count it a very small matter what men think of us and the all-important matter of what God thinks of us. Think less of your reputation and think more about what God cares about you. Don't worry about your perception of what people think about you and what people say about you. Worry about what God thinks. That's gonna guarantee you true success. Another preacher some of us are familiar with said this, uh, if you will take care of your depth, God will take care of your breadth. If you will take care of your character, God will take care of your reputation. Greg Laurie said that. <laughs> and so how did Saul get this way? How did Saul get this way? He started off strong, but ultimately he died shamefully. He was radically paranoid. He was constantly in pursuit of David to kill him, we will see in the coming weeks. And it's a lesson that we can learn from when it comes to following and obeying God's will for our lives and also being content with what God has given us. That brings us to our first point today, contending with discontentment. How do we contend with discontentment? Number one, practice contentment. <laughs> practice contentment. You wanna know the cure for discontentment, for envy, for covetousness in your heart? is practice contentment. First Timothy 6 tells us, 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you don't have that underlined in your Bible, you should. This is a great passage. For we brought nothing into the world, it continues, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Saul had not behaved in a godly way, and he had not been content with what God had given him. We see this in his life. He was not content, and he was not living a godly way. David conquering Goliath was a win for Israel. He knocked that giant down. He defeated the Philistines with one single blow. But all Saul could think about was that David had the accolades. David was getting the praises, and David had the heart of the people. Saul had forgotten all about what God had done for him, and he was miserable. He envied David. He wanted to have David killed because he stole his spotlight. Saul had forgotten what God had done for him and how Israel had now conquered the Philistines. This was a win for him as a king. And Saul was being paraded as a victorious king. He had everything he could want, but he still wanted more. It wasn't enough. You know, today, it's really easy for us to never have enough, to never feel like we're content with what we have, to always feel like the next thing is going to make us happy, the next, you know, new car that we get, or the next... Uh, you know, amount of money that we get is going to make us happy or whatever new gadget that you're going to buy off of the internet, whatever it might be. It's impossible for us today uh, to not get sold on things. It's impossible for us to just completely avoid that. It seems like more than ever, we are being sold things wherever we go, whether, uh, whether it's on social media, whether through its uh, emails that we've signed up for, TV ads popping up, billboards on the road, targeted advertisements. It's like you go to sleep and you dream about like a random pair of sandals or something and you wake up and open up your phone and there's an email in your inbox saying, buy this pair of sandals. Like, how, how do they do that? I'm, I'm honestly scared at this point. It could be a new razor or a new car, a new house, a new appliance or something else we don't need. We can quickly find ourselves impulsively buying things with the hope that it's going to satisfy us, right? And then it comes in the mail and we rip it open. Oh, here it is, the Amazon box. And you pull it out. Oh, it's so stoked. And you just go put it on a shelf and you forget about it. It's like, whoa, was that it? That's what I was waiting for? Even my kids are affected by this. My little kids, they play a game on their iPad and they get an advertisement for some new game or toy or, or a new slime or something, right? What is the deal with slime, by the way? I don't get it at all. It's like I come home and my kids have like a two gallon jug of Elmer's glue. I'm like, what are you doing with that much glue? I'm a little bit alarmed. Uh, I hope you're not sniffing that obviously or working with that too close. No, dad, it's for slime. Slime, what's the deal? And they mix it with like all, all these colors. And I think like, uh, is it baking soda? I don't know what it is. Some chemical that makes it so it, it pulls apart more and it doesn't stick to your hands. And uh, they add like colors to it and glitter. And then they like want me to touch it. And I just get, I'm not a germaphobe, but I get like anxiety touching that stuff. Cause I just think I saw you drop that you know, in the street when you got into my car. And then I saw you playing with it in the bath. And then I saw you drop it in the yard where the dog poops. And it's like, you want me to pick that up and touch it? Like that's some kind of disgusting sponge just picking up every little trace of bacteria. Obviously I've got a thing against slime, I guess. Um, but it's always something. It's always something. 
And so what I try to do with my kids as a parent, a little tip for you guys, that seems to work pretty well, is with my kids, um, I try and take time with them where we talk specifically about the ways that God has blessed us and done things for us. And he's given us the things that we need the most. And now he's given those to us. He's given us health. He's given us safety. He's given us food. He's given us education, family, friends, nice things. God has blessed us. And we get specific. Um, this last week, my son had his 10th birthday. And uh, we were going to bed that night. And when we prayed, and he said, Jesus, thank you for my birthday party. And you know, give us a good night's sleep. Amen. I was like, hey, that was great. Why don't we get a little more specific? Or that was a big thing you just glossed over, right? And so we think about the people that came to his birthday party. We think about some of the gifts that he got. We think about um, the fact that he had a birthday cake and he had this fun experience and this person came that he wasn't expecting. We make sure we get specific and we thank God for those things. And now, guess what? He's got a greater appreciation for this blessing in his life than he would have if he had just glossed over it. It's easy for us to forget the blessings God has done in scripture, um, there's a story about this time that Jesus healed these 10 lepers. These guys were lepers. They were outcasts of society. And Jesus came and he healed all 10 of them. And he said, go show yourself to the priests and they'll declare you to be clean and you can re-enter society. And all 10 of them went and they're declared clean by the priests. Only one of those lepers came back and said, thank you to Jesus. How many times do we ask God for something? And then we say, thanks God, see you next crisis. And we never return and say, thank you. We pray for some result that we're waiting for from the doctor. And we get a call from the doctor. Hey, good news, your, your scan is clear. Or good news, you know, there's, there's no break. It's only a, whatever, a fracture and you have to wear a soft cast. Or, you know, oh, you pulled a ligament, but it, you know, it's not gonna require surgery. There's no tear, so just take it easy. How often do we say, oh, thank you so much, doctor. That's such great news. Back to the Netflix, you know? We don't even thank God for the fact that we had prayed for that moments earlier and we forget to come back and we say thank you to him. In Psalm 103, it gives us a, a really great template uh, to look at the many ways that God has blessed us in a specific way. Do this yourself in your quiet time. Create a list and just say, Lord, here's things that I'm thankful for in my personal life and my spiritual life and my work life and get specific and pray about those things. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this. This is a great practice for us to have is to be thankful. Most of the time, the cure for discontentment is just remembering to thank the Lord for what he has already given to you and done for you. So many today have been so focused on what they do not have that they have completely missed what they do have. They completely miss the fact that God has blessed them with a wonderful, beautiful, healthy family. And they're so hung up on making that next amount of money or getting to that next social status or having this car, or having this appearance, whatever. Insert, you know, the blank, uh, fill in the blank here. And we're so quick to forget what God has given us. Constantly chasing the next thing or being filled with envy of what others have that you don't, you are unable to enjoy life. Talk about a miserable experience. So, a way to combat discontentment uh, is to practice contentment. Focusing and thanking God for what you do have before dwelling and obsessing over what you do not have. The second way we can contend with discontentment, number two, is celebrate the success of others. Celebrate the success of others. We read in 1 Samuel 18, verses 3 and 4, about Jonathan, the son of, uh, the son of Saul. He was a prince 
And we read uh, in verse 3, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing, and he gave it to David, and he gave him his armor, and he even gave him his sword and his bow and his belt. A perfect example of celebrating the success of others is none other than Saul's own son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, he was a daring warrior himself. He snuck into the outpost of the Philistine army, and he caused a panic, we read earlier in 1 Samuel. And as he snuck into that outpost, there was such a panic among the Philistines that it resulted in them fleeing like crazy, running for their lives. They didn't know what was going on. There was an earthquake, and, and the Lord was obviously with Jonathan in that moment. And they panicked so badly that the Philistine army began to fight against themselves, and they began slaughtering each other. The entire Philistine army pretty much reduced themselves down to a few hundred people, and it was thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in this army. So Jonathan himself was a daring warrior. He was a victorious warrior. He was also heir to the throne. His dad was the king. He was going to become king next after his dad handed him the throne. He was respected by the people. He was young. He was loved by the people. And so David very easily could have been perceived as a direct threat, right? Who's this young hotshot, right? Coming in and taking down Goliath, the Philistine army. What about me? Nobody's talking about me anymore and how I helped conquer the Philistines a, a few months ago. No, he didn't see Jonathan that way, or excuse me, Jonathan didn't see David that way. We don't know what Jonathan was feeling. We don't know if he felt insecure or if he felt threatened by David, but what we see is what he did. Jonathan honored David and he honored his success and his victory for the Israelites. And Jonathan gave David his, his princely tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. You never know how a small act of kindness will impact a person doing some small little thing, buying the person's lunch behind you in line, you know, in and out or whatever it might be. Hey, let me buy their food or uh, buying the person's coffee that you know you're, you're going out to lunch with. Hey, let me get lunch today. Let me, let me buy your coffee after today. Just doing that small little token of appreciation, small little thing. You never know what that's going to do. Um, we know that for Jonathan, it quite literally blessed David it blessed Jonathan because he became friends with David, who would become king next. But also, this would bless Jonathan's descendant, uh, his son, Mephibosheth. Because during David's rule, after Jonathan and Saul had died in battle, David became king. Um, Mephibosheth's nurse, basically Jonathan's uh, helper with his son, basically ran off with Mephibosheth, thinking that David was going to kill the next heir to the throne. And uh, she dropped him, and Mephibosheth was paralyzed. and He was unable to walk his entire life. Much later down the line in, in David's life, he finds out that Jonathan had a son. And he's like, are you kidding me? Bring this guy into my kingdom. Bring him into the palace so that I can treat him with the love and affection and appreciation that I would have shown his father, Jonathan. And so because of that, because of Jonathan's small token of appreciation, this small extension, this gift that he gave, uh, it blessed generations in Jonathan's life. And so make sure that, number two, you celebrate the success of others when you're contending with discontentment. Number three, rejoice always. Rejoice always. First Thessalonians 5 tells us, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Verse 16, rejoice always. Always. Rejoice always. Underline that in your Bible if you haven't yet. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, how many of you heard, um, have heard what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Jesus wept, right? That, yeah, that's, that's what I always knew too. Um, 
That's if you count the English letters, Jesus wept, right? It's J-E-S-U-S-W-E-P-T. Congratulations, I can spell. Uh, that is the shortest verse in the Bible with the English letters. But newsflash, it wasn't written in English. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. And the shortest verse in the New Testament, counting the Greek letters, is not Jesus wept. It's rejoice always. And boy, does it pack a punch. Rejoice always. Really? Rejoice always? Like, it's kind of a tall order. Like, rejoice always, even when I don't feel like it. Maybe you think, oh, I know somebody that's kind of like that. They're always happy. Um, everything is positive. They're always, like, really stoked about everything. You know, ever since they had that lobotomy a few years ago, like, everything just seems to be going great for them. A little slow, but uh, I know a guy like that. No. I'm not talking about a chemical disposition or just being super amped all the time. Oh, I'm so stoked. I get to go to the DMV today without an appointment and get to wait in that two-hour line on my lunch break. Yes! Nobody's like that. There's nobody like that. Or when you rear-end somebody on your way to work and you hit the rear of the bumper. Oh, wonderful. My insurance premium is going to go up even more. That's great. No. That's definitely not what I'm talking about, and that's not what... Uh, the Bible's talking about when it says to rejoice always. No, the rejoicing that Paul talks about here is not based on a skin-deep emotional response to getting that breakfast burrito you've been craving, only to go into a deep depression afterwards. No, that is not it. Our joy, the type of joy that Paul is talking about, is not based on our circumstantial emotions, based on whether our favorite sports team won or we got that new car or that house or uh, whatever. No, it's not based on that at all. Our joy is based on where we stand before God as Christians. The righteous judge, it's where we stand before God. Because if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1.6 says, our joy is not based on circumstance. Our joy is based on where we stand. We can rejoice because we didn't have to earn our salvation that was a free gift to us, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says. We can rejoice because the same power that conquered the grave lives in us. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is alive in us 2,000 years later, Romans 8, 11 says. We can rejoice that God has finally given us everything we need that pertains to living a godly life, 2 Peter 1, 3 says. We can rejoice that God wants us to give us the desires of our heart. Psalm 37, 4 says, we can rejoice because maybe you're here and you're like, I committed my life to Christ at the Harvest Crusade last year or last weekend at church and, you know, or up at camp when I was a kid. And you know what, to be honest, I, I think I messed this up. I don't know if I prayed right. Did I break up with God? I sinned, I messed up. I, I don't know what's going on. Listen, we can rejoice because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Listen, we have a lot to be thankful for as believers. There's a lot to rejoice about and it's about focusing on what God has done for us before we become discontent with the things that we are still waiting for. Be thankful in all circumstances. Be thankful. <laughs> Giving thanks, being thankful, having perspective. This is something that Saul lacked. This is something that he missed out on. God's best was not enough for him. 
being the king of Israel, being strikingly handsome, being victorious in battle, it was not enough for him to obey God when he gave him very clear commands. Saul also did not honor the Lord when he was refusing to wait for Samuel to lead them into battle to bless the armies of Israel as they went in to fight the Amalekites. He refused to wait for him and he did the blessing himself. And it's like, that was very improper. That was sinful that he did that. Saul was discontent. He was not thankful. He was not gracious and happy for the things that he had been blessed with. Listen, doing these things, being grateful and giving thanks, rejoicing in the Lord, is not just a good idea for us spiritually. It's also a good idea for us literally uh, physically. Researchers, I don't know what researchers are. Researchers. You're like, I'm a researcher. (laughs) Researchers have done extensive studies on people that are thankful, that practice gratitude. And get this, they have found that it's good for your weight. There you go. It's good for your attitude, for sure. It's good for your skin. It's good for your sleep. And it's even good for your dog. Yep, that's right, your dog. (laughs) Dog owners that are less thankful and have higher levels of stress actually showed in the dog's blood work, they're doing blood work on dogs now, They said that they found in the dog's blood work, they found that levels of cortisol were found to be higher in dogs with stressed odors than than those with owners who weren't stressed. Not the dogs, come on, be thankful for yourself, be thankful for the Lord. If nothing else, be thankful for your dog, I guess, right? (laughs) It's God's will for our lives. And this is a fundamental part of being a follower of Jesus. Listen, you belong to Jesus, God's will for you is to be thankful in all circumstances. Give thanks, pray always, do it without ceasing. This is God's will for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Even when you, yeah, that's right, amen. Even when you don't get the job, even when you don't get the raise, even when you don't get the accolades that you were hoping for, you can still find something to be thankful to God for. I heard the quote uh, from a theologian a while back and it stuck with me because I had this experience firsthand uh, and people everywhere, I'm sure, have had this same experience. I'm sure many of you, this will resonate with you as well. He said, the loneliest moment in a man's life is when he has achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate and it has just let him down. There's a lot of things in this life that you build up in your mind that you think is going to deliver the ultimate that is going to finally get you to that place of ecstasy and happiness and fulfillment that you've always been looking for. And when you get there, it's empty and it lets you down. Listen, I wanna tell you here today that you uh, can have a relationship with Jesus and that will never let you down. It'll never let you down. Making Jesus the Lord of your life and serving his will and his glory is the best thing that you can do. Listen, I don't know what your ultimate was or what you think the ultimate is, but it is going to let you down. Jesus will never let you down. A relationship with him will fulfill you. It'll give you the opportunity to practice true contentment and what you're looking for is in a relationship with him. And so in closing, I wanna extend to you an invitation for you to put your faith in Christ. I wanna ask you that question. Have you had your sin forgiven? If you had your sin forgiven, you can get right with God today and be forgiven of your sin because Jesus died on the cross for you. But first you must admit your sin and call out to him and believe in your heart. Do you have the certainty of heaven? You can have it today. 
You can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that when you die, you will go to heaven. Is there someone here that is listening and you've been carrying around this burden of sin and guilt and shame because of what you've done and you haven't been forgiven? Listen, you can have that forgiveness today. You can have that burden of shame and guilt removed. You can have that. If you would like to receive the free gift of eternal life, if you would like to know that you're going to heaven when you die, if you would like to have that burden and all those things taken away, and not only that, have joy and joy more abundantly in this life, you can have that as well. Not just the hope of heaven, but a fulfilled life. Listen, if you'd like to have that, I want to extend this invitation to you now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you extend to us. We thank you that you not only shower us with blessings, Lord, and you, you give us the hope of heaven, but Lord, you give us this life as well. Lord, it's been said that if we aim for earth, we don't get heaven or earth, but when we aim for heaven, we get heaven and earth thrown in. Lord, we're thankful that you give us the desires of our heart. We're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that you have given us opportunities to be content. Help us to practice those things. Help us to recognize the many blessings that you've poured out upon us. Lord, I pray for every person now that's, that's listening. Help them to see their need for you and to help them to come to you. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're praying here together, um, how many of you today would say, yeah, that's, that's me. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to know that my sin will be forgiven. I want to be a child of God. I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. If that's your desire, you want to have those things, would you just raise your hand up? And I want to lead you in a prayer. Wherever you are, raise your hand up. And I want to lead you in a prayer. God bless you here in the sanctuary at Harvest Orange County. If you're at Harvest Riverside or you're watching somewhere else, you raise your hand up as well. I can't see you, but you know what? The Lord sees you. And that's who this is between, you and God. Not between you and me or you and your parents. God has no grandchildren. God only has children. So you raise your hand as well. And I'll lead you in a prayer. Wherever you're at, God bless you. God bless you. You want Jesus to forgive you of your sin. You want Jesus to come into your life. You can have that opportunity right here, right now. Just raise your hand and we'll pray together. You're saying, that's me. I want God to change me. I want God to forgive me of my sin. Raise your hand. God bless you. Others are raising their hand. Are you? Don't let this moment pass you by. Today is the day of salvation. You can walk out of here a new creation. Only God can do that. Anybody else? Maybe there's somebody here today that would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I've stumbled in my faith. I'm a rechurcher. <laughs> I've sinned. I've made mistakes. I've made many mistakes, and I've done what I know is wrong before God, and I want to be forgiven. I have actively walked away from him, and I want to make a recommitment to him today. If that's you, and you want to make a recommitment to God, you raise your hand up as well, and we'll pray together. Raise your hand up. God bless you. God bless you. Let's get this resolved right here, right now. Not tomorrow, not next week. We're not promised tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. What is holding you back? There should be nothing that holds us back from getting right with God. God did everything he could on his end to get us into heaven. All we need to do is recognize that we are a sinner, that Jesus is the Savior. Put our faith in him and make him the Lord of our life. That's all you have to do. God bless you. Church, why don't we pray these words alongside them and in support. Pray these words. Dear God, 
I know I'm a sinner, but I know that you're the Savior who sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I'm sorry for my sin, and I turn from it now. Jesus, I choose to follow you from this moment forward as my Savior and Lord, as my God and friend. Thank you for hearing this prayer and answering this prayer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Harvest Ministries, follow this show and consider supporting it. Just go to harvest.org. And to find out how to know God personally, go to harvest.org and click on Know God.